This is a beautiful and a touching story in Acts chapter 20. Don't turn there. About the Apostle Paul, he felt compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And he had trouble in Jerusalem before. And he had a premonition in his soul and in his heart and because of prophetic things that he would have trouble again. He wanted to meet with the elders from the church in Ephesus where he had spent three years of his ministry. But he didn't want to go to Ephesus, so he called the elders to meet with him in Miletus. And so you have this uh, seaside gathering, if you will, of uh, uh, the elders, the leaders of the church in Ephesus and Paul. And Paul reminds them of the things that he taught them. And he reminds them that he taught them the whole counsel of God and that he taught them night and day with tears. And at the end of this scene, they have a tender parting. They're weeping because, especially the Bible says, because Paul said he would never see them again. One of the things that Paul does in this meeting is he warns them And these are the words of that warning. And hear them now as a church this morning. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And then he says something shocking almost. He says, also from among yourselves men will rise up, And they will be speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul warned them that there would be uh, error that was coming out. He called this error that was coming from the outside savage wolves. But then he also warned them, and you're going to have error that comes from within. That's a shock. But there's going to be error that comes from within, and you need to stand against it. As I was preparing to preach on Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20 this week, this came to my heart in a very profound way, in a strong way that I believe was from the Lord. If you were to ask me, what's the most dangerous teaching that's popular among evangelicals today? I want to talk to you about that. What's the most dangerous teaching that's popular among evangelicals? I think I would say to you something like this. I think the most dangerous teaching that's popular among evangelicals today is the idea that because because we have freedom in Christ, we have no obligation to keep the law of God. It would be the idea that because we have freedom in Christ or because we have grace, that there's no law that's binding upon us. Now, the Scriptures teach the opposite of that. Let me give you just three quick examples Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, you're talking about liberty that you have in Christ. People say, I have my liberty in Christ. And they, 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 they say that to mean, therefore, I can violate the teaching of the Scripture because I have a liberty in Christ. Here's what, here's what Galatians 5 and 13 says. You, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for your flesh, but through love serve one another. You have liberty to serve or obey, not liberty to disobey God. First Peter says it this way, 2.16, we are free, and as free, yet we're not using liberty as a cloak for vice. Now, this is the air I think is happening in the evangelical church, maybe happening in your life, in our home, in this church, and that is that we say, I have liberty, but really what we're, what we're saying, we have liberty, but we're really using our liberty or a distorted idea of liberty as a cover for the practice of not virtue but for the practice of vice jude 1 in verse 4 there's only one chapter in jude jude verse 4 says certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation they are ungodly men who turn the grace of our god into lewdness or lasciviousness they're twisting god's grace into a license to be lewd or to sin 
And they deny the only Lord and uh, our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. These are three examples in the Bible. I can give you, I'll give you more as we go on. Now, now think about this for a minute. People are correct. You've got to stick with me today a little bit because there's very little candy in my message, right? So stay with me here, okay? People are, are no appetizers, just straight in, okay? So get your Bible open in your lap. We're going to go to Matthew 5. We're going to go to a couple of other places. But listen to this. People are right. They're correct when they say that you can't be saved by keeping the law. If you say you have to keep the law in order to be saved by your own personal effort, then that would be a legitimate label legalism. In other words, a person who says you've got to be saved by keeping the law in your own power that person would be legitimately labeled a legalist. That is legalism. It's wrong. People are right in saying that you cannot keep the law in your own power. So if you say, I can keep the law of God in my own power, you, that'd be a form of legalism. There are, num- there are a number of types of legalism. That, that'd be a form of legalism. That'd be a legitimate use of the word. It's interesting because the Bible teaches that without the aid of the Spirit, we cannot keep the law of God. And so if you say, I can keep the law of God on my own, through my own effort, again, that would be legal. Or if you lay that on other people. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul says to the Galatian believers who know they were saved, they were justified by grace through faith, they were going on in order to be perfected or sanctified in the power of their only flesh. And what did he say to them in Galatians 3? Who has bewitched you? It's demonic for a person to come to believe that they were saved by grace, but their sanctification is all their own work. That's demonic. It's wrong. That would be another form of legalism. But God does expect us to keep the law. It would be people are incorrect when they say that because they're not saved by keeping the law and they're not perfected by their own power in keeping the law, that God doesn't want them to love the law and delight in the law and keep the law. He does want us to keep the law. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to redeem us from what? According to Titus chapter one and verse two and verse fourteen, from every lawless deed. Jesus died to redeem us from every lawless deed. So Romans chapter 8 and verses 3 and 4 put the dagger in the heart of this error. If you listen to it, Romans 8, 3 and 4 is going to tell you in the scriptures that God in the New Testament economy, in the church, wants believers to love, delight in the law of God and keep the law of God. Here's what it says. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according, not according to the flesh, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, write it down, verses 3 and 4, if you need to go back and confirm what I'm saying. Let me recap now. Okay, this is just kind of introductory material. Holiness, then, is not legalism. Holiness is not legalism. Keeping the law of God is not legalism. Legalism is trying to be saved by keeping the law. Legalism is trying to be holy by human effort alone. Legalism is presenting, is pressing things upon other people, like codes of conduct that are extra biblical, and pressing them on other people. That is legalism. But holiness is not legalism. When we try to get people to obey the law of God by torquing them into extra-biblical regulations and rules, then we are resorting to legalism, and it really has no power against the flesh. Hear me now on this. It's a very pastoral and direct teaching I'm giving you today, but it comes straight out of our text. Holiness is not legalism. Holiness is the result of the Spirit's work in a regenerate life, and every believer ought to long for that. Every believer ought to desire holiness. 
And every believer, it is possible for a believer to, to practice a holy life. And this is what is implied in what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and verses 17 through 20 when he calls them out on the kind of righteousness that they had. It's implied that there is a righteousness that they can have and that's what we're going to be talking about today. So having said that as kind of introductory material, keep these things in mind as we look at the text today in Matthew chapter 5 and let's read from verses 17 to verse 20. Do not think that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. He says, don't ever think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. He's talking about the Old Testament. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill or to obey fully the law, to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle shall, will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Reading again. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Jesus goes on. He says, And whoever therefore breaks one of these least commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Then he says something shocking and kind of in your face in verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now let's just be really clear about this. This is not a complex passage, but it is a very profound passage. And this passage is like at the heart of Jesus' sermon here. It's important that we understand. As, Jesus, uh, you know, as, we get, as Matthew rolls out to us in the first um, section here, he has a narrative section, then he has teaching sections, and he's showing us what Jesus did, then what Jesus thought. This is the first section in which he's telling us what Jesus thought. It's critical, it's key uh, to his argument, and this is the key part of that section. So we want to understand this. He's just saying two things. Verses 17 and 18 and 19, he's saying this. Jesus is claiming everything that he says and everything that he does is in harmony with the Old Testament. Now, obviously, what's implied here is he's being criticized as one who's violating the Old Testament law. And there's some reasons for that we'll get to in a minute. But in verse 20, he says the second thing, and that's really all that there is here. The first thing he says is, everything, Jesus is saying, everything I do and teach is in total and complete harmony with the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. Then he says in verse 20, and the Pharisees, the ones who have the reputation for being in harmony with the Old Testament, they're not. That's verse 20. There you have it. That's what he's saying. Now, let's expand on those a little bit and study each verse together. Jesus came, verse 17, to fulfill, not abrogate, or not destroy the law of God, but to completely, personally obey and complete the law of God. Jesus says this. That's what verse 17 says. Why would people have accused Jesus of not keeping the law? Well, it wasn't because he wasn't perfect. Because who of you could say, Jesus said, who of you could, who, who of you could condemn me, uh, to, could point out any evil or wrong in my life? Who of you could say what Jesus said and get away with that? Not if you knew anybody, you couldn't, right? You just couldn't do that. It would be laughable. It would be a joke. People would immediately know that you're trying to be funny. Jesus wasn't being funny. No one could accuse Jesus of evil. He completely, thoroughly, personally, perfectly obeyed the law of the Father. He is God, and he was perfect in his earthly life and always has been and always will be. 
So why would they have accused him? Here are some suggestions. It may have been because he rejected the extra laws that the Pharisees tacked on to God's law without any, you know, they didn't have any permission to do that from God. And so he was saying, I, I don't have to obey your law. I'll obey God's law, but I'm not going to obey your law because your law is the commandment of men, and I'm not going to obey it because he doesn't have to obey it. Certainly that's true. It may have been because he spoke with his own authority. At the end of the message, it says the people were shocked because he had his own authority. And they maybe think, okay, this guy's got something brand new he's bringing in. This has no congruence with the Old Testament. It doesn't come out of that. Jesus is saying, no, that's not true. Everything I say is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. It may have been because Jesus did associate with people who violated the laws of God. Jesus did not violate the laws of God. Jesus didn't have a penchant for worldliness and want to hang out with people that are drinking and carrying on and carousing. He didn't do that. That is not what Jesus did. Don't let some modern evangelical tell you that's what Jesus did. That's their kind of, you know, cover. That's their using grace as a cloak for their own desire to hang out with worldly people and do worldly stuff. Jesus didn't do that. When Jesus was with lost people, he was on mission. He was on, are you with me on this? He was on a holy mission. Jesus did not compromise in personal holiness. Jesus did not. He was not a drunken, worldly person to connect with other lost people. That's not our holy, precious Lord Jesus. discredits Him for people to say that's what Jesus did. He did not do that, and you should not do that. Jesus Christ, the holy, perfect Son of God, though, spent time with the worst of sinners. And He wasn't eager to condemn them because He came to save them. He wasn't shy about exposing their sin, not shy at all. His words were very frank, especially with religious hypocrites. But Jesus came not to abrogate or to destroy the law of God, but he was tagged as being a person that was moving away from the Old Testament law. And so he's starting his message by going, no, no, let me tell you something. Everything I teach, and get this, everything I do is in harmony with the Old Testament law. This do thing is important. Jesus is going to say later on, he's talking about the entire Old Testament law in verses 17 through 20, and I believe that he moves toward the moral law, and I'll tell you why after verse 20. He starts talking specifically about the moral law and not the elements of the law that were civil and ceremonial, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But what Jesus is going to say is, your righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees in that it is genuine and eternal, and it has this fruit, and he kind of breaks it down in the verses to follow, and he hits every area of our lives. It's amazingly contemporary. When you start reading the rest of the verses, what Jesus is talking about, it hits right where we live in our century. Jesus is saying, this is what righteousness looks like. It's not going to be as easy as keeping somebody's additional codes that they added to the law in order that they wouldn't have to keep the spirit of the law itself. It's going to be a heart righteousness that's weighed down within. And he's going to give bunches of examples of that. I challenge you to study them yourself and have the weeks and months to follow. We'll study through them together. Look in verse 18 now, though. Verse 17, Jesus came to fulfill, not to abrogate or do away with the law. Verse 18 He says every part of the law will be fulfilled no matter how long it takes. Every piece of the law will be fulfilled over time. The law will not pass away. Heaven and earth will not pass away until the law is fulfilled in every stroke of the pen. There is some poetic language that Jesus is using here to kind of say that we should have a a terrifying regard for the law of God. The law of God isn't just somebody's like little sketching, so it doesn't matter if we quite get it right. It's the law of God. So every pen stroke is important. He says here, the law won't pass away until it's all fulfilled. There's a timeless element in the law of God. Get this. 
There's a timeless element in the law of God. There's a timeless element in the law of God. Verse 18. Verse 19, notice what it says. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so. Again, you've got a, con- you've got a connection with not just what you hold to or what you demand of other people, but what you do yourself and what you teach, what you influence other people in doing. So he's saying whoever does and teaches the law, is, who violates the smallest command and teaches other people, they're the least in the kingdom of heaven. And over and over again, this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, is being used. And then he says, but whoever does and teaches them is what? The greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus' teaching is this. Your greatness in God's eyes depends on your attitude toward his law. Depends on your obedience to his law. Do and teach. Depends on your influence on other people regarding the law of God. That's when God looks at a person and says, this person is great, this person is not great. The person who's not great is the one who disregards God's law, doesn't obey God's law, and doesn't teach God's law. The one who's great is the one who regards the law of God, teaches and does the law of God. This may not seem important to you, but it's going to get really practical in a minute, so stick with me. Now the second part is the, verse 20. And this is where he kind of turns a corner after he kind of corrects this wrong thinking that's hanging in the air. He goes directly by name after one particular group, the ruling group. It would be the popular group, the group that everybody would have considered the pretty righteous ones. These people had, if if you'd have said, who loves the law? They might not have said Jesus for the reasons that I gave you earlier, but they would have said the Pharisees are totally into the law. They've got it memorized. They've added all kinds of things to it. And they spend their whole life making sure everybody obeys every little rule that they added to the law. The commandments and doctrines of men, Jesus calls that. Jesus is saying this, the teaching and the behavior of the Pharisees is not in harmony with the Old Testament law. That's what he's saying. The teaching and the behavior of the Pharisees and their heart righteousness is not an expression of God's law. In verse 20, that's why he says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now he has their attention. He's ready to teach. They're like, are you serious? He's calling them out publicly. That's a bull. Do you admire this man? He stands with his chest broad and he says, let me tell you what righteousness is and let me tell you what it isn't. And now let me get specific. And then he goes into very concrete, specific things. When you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, if you're still on your feet, you didn't get it. Right? He's going to take us all out with this. Because he's going to say in verse 48, that you have to be as perfect as the Heavenly Father, right? Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in Heaven is perfect, in verse 48. Now let me, let me draw a natural uh, application of this and then let me preach on, on it for a while, okay? Genuine righteousness, then, is not only expected, but it's possible. Or it's not only possible, but it's expected. In other words... It's not specifically stated in verse 20 because it's not, you know, we're, we're, we're just taking a chunk out of the middle of the message. But what's obviously implied is if Jesus is saying, you're right, you, you know, I came so that you can have righteousness, right? Then he's saying, uh, the kingdom of heaven is here, repent into it. He says in chapter 4, it's kind of an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, Jesus is not just coming to tell people, guess what, you're going to hell and there's nothing to do about that. He's not saying that, right? None of us would suggest that Jesus didn't come with a hopeful message of salvation. You repent, you get in the kingdom, and I'm going to tell you how to do it. But first, we've got to sweep away this nonsense that you've been believing 
that either you can live a licentious life and violate God's law and don't have the law of God and you don't care about it and go to heaven, you can't. Or you can just do something like a little knockoff, cheapo, generic version of the gospel where you do a little self-righteousness that's easy for you and we let you in the pharisaical brand, bland, you know, brand of religion. That's not going to work. And now he's got the debt cleared and he's ready to speak the truth. And he's not going to do it immediately. He's not going to tell the gospel here. What he's going to do is he's going to continue to kind of clarify the law and expose the heart of God in terms of the moral law. Let me give you some more detail about this. And when Jesus challenged the Pharisees' perversions of the law, he wasn't doing away with the law then, because he came to fulfill the law and make it possible for redeemed, spirit-filled believers to obey the law. Do you believe that? Are you doubtful about that? Are you wondering? What do you think? How many of you say, Pastor, you're going to have to convince me of that, because I'm not under the law, but I'm under grace. You can raise your hand. Don't be shy. Come on. Okay. All right. All right. A few of you like, okay. Well, let's work on this a little bit. I want to show you from the Bible. We've got a lot of Bible in this, Okay. It's impossible for us really to look at the law of God as expressed in the Old Testament without seeing distinctions in the law. Because there are parts of the Old Testament law that are clearly judicial or they're civil. In other words, they're given to Israel for Israel to operate as a nation. And in a moment, we're going to see that God's going to move away from exclusively working with Israel and he's going to work with the Gentiles. And that's a big part of the New Testament message, that he's going to go to the Gentiles. And so, as a result of that, he's not calling the civil law of Israel binding on other groups of people. You see that in like Romans chapter 13, don't you? There's the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law are pictures that, that pictured the death and the work of Christ on the cross. And when Jesus Christ died and the veil was rent, and Colossians chapter, three, uh, chapter 2 also teaches that these, um, these uh, ceremonial laws were a picture of the things that Jesus would come. And so in so doing, he would have fulfilled that. In dying on the cross for our sins, Jesus fulfilled all the ceremonial law. And so we don't continue to practice Israel's ceremonial law, fulfilled in Christ. But the moral law, which is, which is, which is initially codified in the Ten Commandments, it, then it's expanded throughout the revelation of God, Old Testament and New. The moral law of God, for instance, even the Ten Commandments, nine are specifically repeated, none of them abrogated in the New Testament, nine specifically repeated as binding on New Testament believers. So the, you see what I'm saying? The moral law, we, why am I saying this? I'm not sure you're getting why I'm telling you. This is really important. Here's why. We live in an age that's lawless, antinomian. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. We want God telling us what to do. And we've got a theology to go with that. And it's embedded in evangelicalism, a theology that kind of says it's really okay if you don't obey the specifics of God's law because, I mean, after all, you're under grace. And, and that, that means that you're not under the law anymore and you're under grace. And so, in other words, there's a relaxing of the standard of God's holiness, and that's a deadly mistake to make. It's a damning mistake to make. And that's why we're talking about this, because I think it's at the heart of what Jesus is saying. If you claim to be free from God's demand to be holy, you say, I'm free from God's demand to be holy, then you are going to be a slave to sin. You, I can prove this. Let's, um, oh, wow, is my time going fast today. Uh, in Romans chapter 6, in chapter 6, verse 15 through 23, it specifically says that. If a man says, I'm free from obeying God, he's going to be a slave to sin. But if he is a slave to God, he has righteousness with Christ. He, so you're going to be a slave. Write it down. You're going to be a slave to something. You're going to serve your flesh and sin, the devil, or you're going to serve the Lord, and the fruit of that is righteousness and eternal life. That's what Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23 say. 
So I want to show you today that the law is good unless it's used in an unlawful way. That's what 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8 says. We know the law is good. This is in the New Testament epistles. We know the law is good if it's used lawfully, which is an interesting play on words, isn't it? And in there, it's like the law is a power tool. Now, you know, it's like when you've got to drive a nail, and you're like, oh, I don't have anything here, so i got this woman's high-heeled shoe. And I'm like, well, it's what i got. So you're trying to drive a nail with that, and it doesn't work very well. But if you have a hand tool, you're like, let me at it, you know, and, and now I can, I can do that. But if you have a power tool, there's something wonderful about that. You know, can I get a witness on that? Power tools are like men that are real men love power tools. That's all. I mean, I'm not like a builder guy, but I don't mind getting a power tool. I want to pay for them if I can spend my money on books. But I like to, when I build something, I want a power tool. I want to plug it in, and I want to make big holes in things. I want to make, you know. Listen, the law of God is not as powerful as the gospel, but the law of God does reveal the glory of God according to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and it has a power to do that. The law is a power tool to do all kinds of wonderful things. What if I were to tell you this? What if I were to tell you that I could help you achieve, I could tell you about a spiritual power tool that would help you achieve genuine love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Does that sound good? Hey, I would like to have genuine love. I don't have a lot of that. My love is kind of fake sometimes, right? Oh, I would love to have sincere faith. I would like God to stamp me. Ken Pierpont's faith is sincere. I'm like, thank you. That'd be cool, wouldn't it? How'd you like that? Can I tell you what the power tool is that will help you with that? According to 1 Timothy Chapter 1, it's the law of God. The end of the commandment, the scriptures say there, the end of the commandment is genuine love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The law of God works in us with the, with the aid of the Holy Spirit, according to Romans chapter 8, in, in saved people in order to produce people who are increasing conformity to God's law. And this is the law that is a power tool. So you want to... Here's the point of my message today, okay? If you like... Didn't listen it yet. You can catch up right now. Point of the message. If you got a brain, you will delight in the law of God. If you're wise, you will delight in the law of God. You will delight in the law of God because of its power, its continual power. It's like a wonderful DeWalt power screwdriver drill. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. The purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, sincere faith. Here's, here's another passage. Listen, Matthew 22, 36 through 40. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love... He didn't say, now don't worry about it anymore because it's not really important if you obey my law. I'm getting ready to do something different and it's not going to be important. That's not what he said. He said, if you, you, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, he repeated Deuteronomy chapter 6. Your neighbor is yourself. He says, if you do this, you will have kept the commandments. That's in Matthew 22. In Romans 13, love does no... This is Romans, an epistle, New Testament. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is what? The fulfillment of the law. In Matthew 5, 17-20 is the passage under consideration today. This is the synchronon. This is the great statement that Jesus makes that the law is still binding on you. You might be sitting here today and you might be saying, you know, hey, I said the prayer. You know, I'm a, I go to church. Like, you understand... Jesus is not going to come back, check the church rolls to see if you go to heaven. That's not how it's going to work. Jesus just looks straight at your heart, and what he's looking for is righteousness that's described in this that comes out of your heart. If it's not there, you're not saved. You say, Pastor, you tell me I've got to be perfect. No, I didn't say that. 
But the presence of righteousness that is God implanted in your life is the evidence that you know Jesus as your Savior, not that you got your name on a card somewhere, or your mom and dad are saved, or your, your, your wife is. Or That's not it. It's you, it's God, and He looks with piercing eyes down into the very secrets of our soul, and that ought to really make us tremble and seek the Lord. Now, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13, Brethren, you're called to liberty... Don't use this liberty as an opportunity for flesh. I'm repeating myself now, right? First Peter 2.16, you're free. Don't use your freedom or your liberty as a cloak for vice. In other words, if there's flesh, the, the, the exhibition of fleshly sinful behavior or vice, not virtue in your life, don't call that grace because that's not grace. Again, Jude 4, the, this is, men will come in. They will teach this as a doctrine. They will take the grace of God. They will distort it into uh, a license for sin. So we have a prophetic statement that's going to happen, and it's happening right now. You just don't want to be, you don't want to be influenced by that. Now, understand here's some applications as we go into this. And let, me, let me read some scriptures. Romans 7, 12. Hear these scriptures, and if you want notes, I can send them to you because there's just a lot here. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. The law is good. Listen to this, Romans 7, 22, Paul saying, I delight after the law of God in my inner person, my inner man. You hear that? This is the Apostle Paul. Church age, what is he saying? I delight after the law of God in the deepest part of me loves God's law. We're on to something here, you get it? Romans 13, 8, Oh, no man anything except love one another. Whoever loves another has fulfilled the law. Ephesians 6, 2, Honor your father and mother. That's the first commandment with promise. It's referring to the law. Uh, James 2 and 10, you know this. It says, whoever shall keep the whole law but stumble at one point is guilty of all. As if it matters that you keep the law, because it does. I could go on and on here. 1 Timothy 1, 1.8, we know the law is good if God uses it lawfully, as I quoted before. Titus 2.14, we're redeemed from every lawless deed. 1 John 3 and verse 4, whoever commits sin commits lawlessness because sin is lawlessness. In other words, in the New Testament, God continually expands on an understanding of what the moral law is, and that law is binding on New Testament believers, but we don't achieve it by our own personal effort. We achieve it by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. What's Jesus' attitude toward the law? If it's not already obvious from what I said, Jesus taught the law. Jesus obeyed the law. He, ta- he expected other people to teach the law and obey the law, verse 19. So he wants us to have that attitude toward the law. So what should our attitude toward the law be? Let me give you an example, and I love this example. Um, you can't follow me because of the speed at which I'm going to do this. I cheated and I got a little head start on you. I highlighted verses from Psalm 119 on a special... I started this service talking about something that would be like delightful to you, right? Here's what the Bible says over and over again in Psalm 19. It's like, remember this? Oh, how I love your law. It's my delight, right? Let me give you some examples. I'm only isolating Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes so I can see wondrous things from your law. Your testimonies also are my delight, and my counsel is my delight. Verse 35, make me walk in the path of your commandments because I delight in it. I delight in it. You're not saying if you're a genuine believer, oh, I'm so tired of God giving me stuff to do. You're saying, tell me what it is you want to do. You're my God. Please, Lord, empower me to obey you. That's the life I want to live. Uh, Verse 47, I will delight myself in your commandments, which I love. Verse 70, their heart is fat as grease. I like that one. But I delight in your law. 
Here's verse 92, or verse 77. Your tender mercies come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. In verse 92, unless your law had been my delight, I would then have perished in my affliction. You say, I don't read my Bible, but you delight in the law of God? I don't like long preaching. Okay, but you love the law? Okay. Talk to the Lord about it, you know. Isn't there a football game on today? It's the Pro Bowl, people. Who cares? Who cares? Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. I'd rather go shopping. Oh, no. <laughs> Verse uh, 109, my life, is con- my, my life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. Verse 113, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. Verse 126, it's time for you to act, O Lord, and this is our time, for they have regarded your law as void. Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men don't keep your law. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness and your law is truth. I do not forget your law. I hate and abhor lying, but I love your law. Great peace have they, verse 165. Great peace have they which love your law. Nothing will cause them to stumble. Are you hearing this? I'm just telling you this powerful truth that Jesus is teaching. Don't let anyone tell you that real Bible Christianity is a lawless religion. No, the law of God. God gives us His law to express His heart to us, and then He gives us His Spirit in order for us to obey His law, to grow in obedience to His law. So we should be people who delight in the law of God. That's what the Bible is teaching here. Now, so think about it like this, you know, you you have uh, all kinds of like tanks running towards you like you're in battle. Imagine you have these tanks running towards you. And one time we had an intruder in the building when we had the uh, hotel in Flint, we had an intruder. And so the word went out there was an intruder. And so it kind of got like the, the, all of the testosterone in the building flooded to the lobby immediately. Every man that was a man grabbed something and came to the lobby. It was hilarious to watch. Plastic Bambi bats golf clubs guy had a frame from a bed that he brought down there where they came up with like a you know broad sword this guy's got a sword bigger than my ego you know here they come you know they're all coming down there it's like oh my word now somebody came rolling in there with a tank what would they do they would just make a big mess is what would happen they would be completely run over but i was standing there next to woody shoemaker woody shoemaker is like a green beret guy he was in the Army, whatever the, I'm sorry, whatever the Navy version of the Green Beret is. I'm supposed to know that. But anyway, he would be unhappy with me for not being able to tell you that. Anyway, he was in Navy SEALs. Thank you. In the Navy SEALs. <laughs> in the Navy SEALs. He's standing there real quiet. He's not saying anything. All the guys are like, Rrr! you know, it's like, I have my bedpost. You want a piece of me? You know, Pastor Shoemaker's just standing there real quiet by me. And he's got a little lump in his pocket. After a while, he kind of goes, nudges me, and he goes, Boop, pulls out his Glock. Now, that might be more useful, right? If you have an intruder, you're like, when you guys are done playing, you know, tickling him, give me a clear shot at him because I'm going to blow a big hole in the guy, you know? That's just, he's going to die now. And so, you know, that's just sort of fun. You know, we're just like, come on in. You know, welcome to the character inn. You know, <laughs> can you move over? We don't want you to bleed on the carpet. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, so... Here we go. Now, we want to have holiness. We look around, we go, oh, we're in trouble. We don't have holiness in our church. we got people doing this and people saying that and that. Here's what we're going to do. Let's get, all get out our BB guns. Let's all get out our little extra biblical rules that we have, and let's try to bind people to these. Are you with me on this? I'm preaching now. Let's try to bind. Let's, let's say you can't do this, you can't do that. And if we get enough of these lined up, we'll get people to be holy. Can I ask you a question? Has that been working? 
Do you have kids? <laughs> Are you paying attention? What the Bible, though, says that we do have power tools. We do have Sherman tanks and bazookas and glocks and powerful tools. They are the means of grace, the Holy Spirit, the teaching of the Word of God, the law of God. Not any kind of like extra biblical stuff that we hang on the edge. It's kind of easy for us to keep and hard for other people to break so we get people to behave the way we want them to behave. Hear me now. This is an important thing. Jesus goes right at this when he goes after the Pharisees because this is what they were all about. It's using BB guns against tanks. It's not going to work. So so there's much more to say, but let me cut to the heart of things and quit. Jesus really, if you think about it, he's exposing the foolishness here of contemporary comparison. Because what Jesus is doing is he's walking into an environment where there's a religious kind of order in place, and he's going, don't compare yourself with these guys. Because if you compare yourself with these guys, you've got a wrong standard of comparison. If Jesus were here today, and I say with great reverence for God, I know not exactly what he would say, but would not Jesus say, don't look around and compare yourself to the average evangelical Christian. He would say, compare yourself to the law of God. Do you see this? Jesus comes back and he goes, I'm taking you back in order to take you forward. And today, would he say the same thing? His law is timeless. The moral part of the law of God is a timeless part that is still binding. He will keep it and he will enable us to keep it and none of us should violate it and none of us should substitute something that's like smaller than the law of God. Are you with me? No? I can go on here. I'm threatening you. No, I'm just kidding. So yeah, that's right. No, this is it. This is it. Let me, let me just like take a, take a little, take a quick review of America and the church as we see it in just a a quick Passover, and we're going to finish today. The time which we live is similar to the time of Christ in this area. Popular religions of the day are far from what God said they ought to be. Evangelical Christianity is weak. Much of what calls itself evangelical Christianity is really not Bible Christianity at all. There's a measure of genuine faith that should be the measure of genuine. It should be keeping the law of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, this is what Jesus is saying when he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not even going to go to heaven. And that's what Jesus would say to the church today. Don't look around and try to be a little better than the average bear. But look at my law. And when you do that, you'll have no place to go but to the cross and to the power of the Holy Spirit. I I think we must not deny the the truth that our nation is under God's judgment and that we're being affected by the fact that our nation is under the judgment of God. We must not deny that we as the church, as Christian people who name the name of Christ, we have the promises of God, have the means of grace, must bear some responsibility for the, the moral tone in the place where we live. And the reason I say it is because in the Bible, you read of Daniel, and you read these godly men like Daniel and Joseph and Nehemiah. And what do they do? When they look around and they see the vile wickedness all around them, they don't go, God, kill these bad people, but make sure that, you know, tell us ahead of time so we can get out of ground zero. What do they say? They go, God, I can see why you would judge us. I confess my sin and our sin. Godly men and women, that's the way they think when they see all this around them. Think of the things that are happening now. Immorality is taking root in the church. First Thessalonians chapter 4 talks about that immorality. And it says that we 
as sanctified people shouldn't live as Gentiles who do not know God. But a lot of people who call themselves Christians are living as godless people who do not know God. The church is struggling to hold young people, you know, bribing and pleading and coaxing for young people as it was in the days of the Hebrides revival. Churches were empty of young people. Old people got together and they began to pray that God would do something like send a revival. They didn't just buy more pizza for the kids. They didn't just try to have a more, you know, attractive program. These old ladies, blind and in, shut in, the Smith sisters, got on their knees, prayed down, revival. Duncan Campbell visited for a few weeks, stayed for years. God filled the churches with young people. And as a pastor, I'm always tempted, how do you capture the hearts of young people and others who don't know God and love God? Because you can see where they're headed. And the answer is not going to be in our methods. It's not going to be in our charisma. It's not going to be in our, our, our personal enthusiasm. It's going to happen when God moves on them. And that can only happen if we seek the face of the Lord and ask the Lord to act on our behalf. But the church is struggling to hold young people. People are choosing spiritual leaders that are not qualified as spiritual leaders. That is a fact. I'm a pastor. I hang out with pastors. I know this to be true. I'm talking about pastors who use horrible language. Pastors who don't just use bad language in private, but who take the bad language and the double entendre into the pulpit, and they're popular for using questionable language in the very pulpit of God, where they're supposed to be representing a holy God. That's a popular, that's a draw, man. People are like, I like this guy. These are pastors who study filthy, blasphemous comedians in order to get their material to come to the pulpit to hold the attention of people who are spiritually dead. So we must go back and say, God, what did we go off the rails? Where did we go off the rails? And he points us back to his perfect and holy law and to the things that he's given us. Preachers are abandoning preaching the Word of God. Hosea 4.8 says that would happen. God allows ungodly people to lead a nation like this. In Jeremiah, it says, you want, I, would get, I would have given you shepherds after my own heart, but you demanded shepherds after your own heart. And so as an act of judgment, that's what God did. Friends, in terms of leadership in the pulpit and in politics in America today, who can deny that that's what's happening? These are statistics uh, Homicide and incarceration are highest of, in America are highest of any industrialized nation on earth. Ten times that of Japan, Sweden, Ireland, and the Netherlands. Crime increased by 371% since 1960. Juvenile crime up 920% since 1985. Highest in all of the world, juvenile crime in America. Crime going up. Families breaking apart. Divorce quadrupled in the last 30 years, making the U.S. the world leader in that. Teenage pregnancies have quadrupled in the last 30 years, more than a million a year, making the U.S. the leader of the Western world in that. Voluntary abortion, America is the leader in the world. Legal, illegal drug use, America uses more than anybody in the world. Illiteracy, world leader, national education standards among the lowest in the world. Teen suicides more than doubled in 30 years. Most churched Churches in America only experience a trickle of conversions, and many of them are false. So who can deny that God's judgment, that God is not manifesting his power and presence in America today because he's grieved? And where should that leave us? Where Jesus took us. To examine the law of God, to honestly confess that our hearts don't bear a resemblance to the law of God, and to seek forgiveness by getting on our knees before God and and pleading with God, that he would manifest himself again, that he would work in power in our own life to produce in us his holiness. 
Let me recap it. Jesus' teaching was in harmony with the law of God. The popular religion of his day and the popular religion of our day is not in harmony with the law of God. But our hearts, our hearts can be in harmony with the law of God. And they must be in harmony with the law of God. And Jesus enables that. One who is genuinely righteous here then will delight in the law of God after the inward man. You want to ask yourself the question, is that me? Is that, the, is that true about me? God, do I delight in your law? Is there evidence of righteousness in my life? Is there a way that I can do and teach your law in order that you would consider me one who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You can by the grace of God. Today I'd like you to, I'd like to conclude by the singing of a hymn. Pastor, if you'd come, listen to him. If you'd like to come and pray while we're singing, you may, and then we'll, we'll dismiss in a benediction in a moment.